Addiction is so prevalent in the United States that we have a buzzword for a particular kind of addiction. It's called the opioid epidemic. And according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, more than 12.5 million people in 2015 misused prescription opioids. And just over 33,000 people died from an overdose in 2015. It's likely that you know or care about someone entangled in an addiction right now. And maybe you are at your wit's end because you don't understand why that person continues to hurt herself and you and everyone she loves. Maybe you are enslaved by a chemical dependency and you're afraid there's no hope. Well, episode R008 with Mason Floyd may very well change your life. So listen up. Hey there. You're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over, either through their own missteps or through no fault of their own. All walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down. Stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Now, here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Episode R008 features Mason Floyd. His wife, Ada, shared her story on episode R004. It's one of our most downloaded episodes yet. In this episode, Mason walks us through a 20-year journey through a chemical addiction that began in high school. Now, I've heard Mason's story a number of times, In this interview, though, he holds absolutely nothing back. It is emotional, honest, and gripping. This episode is longer than our normal episodes, but it speaks to the heart of why we are in the business of the Reboots podcast. His story shines light on the dark and disheartening opioid epidemic, He also walks us through his childhood understanding of a God he thought demanded perfection and how that metastasized into a full-blown self-loathing and rejection of a creator responsible for, in his mind, the pain in his life and in those he loved. Mason walks us through the relief he felt when he finally realized he wasn't a Christian and when, just a few days later, He felt God's presence in a way he had never experienced and says he can never doubt again. That he lived to share his story with us is remarkable. Hi, Mason. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for sitting down with us and inviting us into your life. Absolutely. You are used to telling your story. Why do you do that? Um, I think for two reasons. Um, I think that one of the ways that I've been able to justify or bring some meaning, I think, into the things that have happened in my life is to use that as sort of a, a testing ground for when I meet people that go through similar experiences to be able to show them that you can get through it um, and maybe even try to guide them a little bit with the ways that I got through it myself. And I think the, uh, the second way is definitely because the more you tell your story, 
the less emotional power that has over you. So, What kind of places do you tell your story? Oh, man, I've told my story uh, in many churches. Um, I've told my story in jails, in recovery meetings, uh, both secular and uh, Christian, and really just to anybody that wants to hear it. And one of the things that's unique about when you tell your story you exhibit a great deal of humor, even when it's not funny sometimes. Yeah, I'm inappropriate like that. <laughs> Have you thought about how that happens or why that happens? Maybe? Uh, no, I don't. I don't ever really go into it with that focus or, or that purpose. Um, I mean, I like to think of myself as somebody with a decent sense of humor uh, in good times and in bad. I definitely think that um, humor, it can be used as a tool to help you through difficult and stressful times. Um, You know, the situation always, it is what it is. And and much like in recovery, you know, we talk about we don't really change the world around us. We change ourselves. And I think using humor to see things uh, is just a way of kind of changing your perspective on it. Well, let's dive in. Sure. Tell us about a little about your childhood. Okay. Um, I have one sister, and I uh, moved to Fort Smith, Arkansas when I was in third grade. Uh, she's four years younger than I am, and uh, lived with my mom and dad, and uh, growing up was a fairly typical experience. Um, I don't have a lot of main memories. Uh, it's kind of spotty, of course. It's been a long time since I was a kid, so uh, when, when looking back, but uh, there was some dysfunction, and uh, there was some some uh, alcoholism and drug use, uh, and, and then the codependency that kind of comes along with that. So the household that we were raised in, I think there was a lot of tension uh, as I was younger up until I was about 13 or 14, uh, and then my parents split up for about a year. And uh, it was kind of odd for me. This, uh, you know, I've kind of had this feeling of being different my whole life. And when that happened, when my parents split and, and I was relieved at that, I kind of, it kind of just strengthened that feeling of, of being different because my friends, uh, when they would go through something like that, you know, they would be saddened that the family was torn apart. And here I was kind of happy about it because it was a, mm. a reprieve from the tension and the yelling and the fighting and all that stuff. So uh, they spent about a year apart. And uh, when they got back together and I was close to 14, I wasn't really happy about that. I was, uh, I felt like life was better when uh, they were apart. And, uh, you know, this is a, a very selfish point of view. And this is what the point of view that I had at that time. I don't have that anymore. But uh, when they got together, back together, I should say, I really went off the deep end. You know, I was, I wasn't, I didn't want to be a part of that family. Uh, so I spent more and more time away from the house, uh, got in with the friends and, I don't know if you call it the right or the wrong crew, but we all made you know poor decisions, and uh, it was weird because I would hear this mantra from my house, from my my dad saying, "Family is important. Family is number one." But uh, I was disgusted with my family. I didn't want any part of them. I want to backtrack just a minute. Mm-hmm. What's your definition of codependency? What does that mean? Uh, well, I've heard a, a very interesting definition. Uh, or I guess a, an analogy of it where a codependent is somebody who 
would rather let you stand on their foot and break the bones than inconvenience you by asking you to take a step back. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, if that makes sense, you know, I feel Mm. like, you know, your worth and uh, your joy and your sadness and your happiness comes from everywhere but you. Now let's go back forward again. You talked about how you went off the deep end. Yeah. uh, I mean, that might've been a poor metaphor. I, that was when I severed emotional ties with my family at that point. Um, there were a lot of, uh, like I said, I made poor decisions. I, I made bad grades. Um, I would make F's on anything that required effort, um, homework and things like that. But then I could come in and I could make an A on the test um, just by sitting there and listening through class. And so I would have a C or maybe even a D average. and. Uh, it just wasn't important to me at the time. I didn't see the importance of going to school and furthering my education. I just wanted to hang out, you know, so I would do the absolute bare minimum that I had to do. And then I just was off to my, to my friend's house. And, uh, one of my better friends in high school, he lived with his sister. She was like 22 or 23. So basically we had a house to ourselves uh, my whole senior year and we would skip school and we would go hang out over there and, yeah, so we just, I mean, that was my whole goal in life as a child was just hanging out. You talked about how you feel about, how you felt about yourself at that time. You thought you were weird because your emotions about your family life were different from your friends. Mm-hmm. You talked about what you thought of your, your family. What about God? Was God in the picture at all? Uh, he was. Um, he was there as a... Punit- <clears throat> excuse me, a punitive dictator. My, my main experience with church at this time, we didn't attend regularly as a family. Um, so when I would go to my grandma's house in Missouri, and she lived in a small town, and, and we would go into her Southern Baptist church, and uh, that preacher liked to preach out of the book of Revelation a lot, and uh, the Old Testament, which, uh, depending on how you look at it, can contain an angry God, you know, a lot of punishment, a lot of, uh, that, that sort of thing. So, um, my understanding at that point in time of what God wanted of me was somebody who didn't sin, somebody who was perfect. And I wasn't capable of doing that. So, um, I can kind of, I can look back on a few times in that, in those services. And, you know, when, uh, they do the altar call at the end and I would be standing next to my grandma and she'd have her arms folded and she'd be looking down her shoulder at me and, you know, kind of trying to, to press us to go up. And I, I made the walk one time and, you know, I, I didn't feel really any different. If anything, I felt more guilt and shame having, I guess, played that part and, and taken that walk. And then I knew, you know, when I got back to the, the pew or whatever it was that I wasn't, I wasn't different. Uh, I didn't feel different. So um, I just, I had a lot of fear growing up. I was scared uh, all the time. And it's, I'm sure it, it plays into the tension that was in the family and the house and, and everything. But just even when I wasn't in a frightening environment, I just felt scared all the time. God was, was sitting somewhere on high and uh, he was watching us. And when we made mistakes, he fixed circumstances in our life to punishment as punishment for those. Uh, so I really felt that anything bad that happened in my life was a result of my failure to live up to this whatever standard, you know, that, that had been set for me 
uh, basically by Jesus, which obviously is a difficult standard to live up to. Uh, so I, I just always felt that I was falling short in, in, in my relationship with him and also in my relationship with anybody. I expected perfection from myself. So early on, you were pretty much making choices that were preparing you for darkness, huh? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's kind of a weird feeling as, a, as an addict where you kind of feel like Jekyll and Hyde because you've got this part of you inside that, you know, logically, uh, intellectually knows the choices that you're making aren't good. But then you've got this other part of you that's driving you to make these choices. And, and to me, I feel like it's purely driven by selfishness, you know, and, and I want to change the way that I feel. I, I don't feel I feel scared or I feel sad or I feel alone. And, and I want to somehow make myself content with that feeling. So I would use drugs and alcohol to numb that. And then as it went on. It didn't take a negative emotion. I would, you know, if I felt good, if I felt happy, well, let's enhance that. Let's make it better. You know, so there's a, a wonderful movie, um, what is it called? 28 Days. And uh, it's uh, Sandra Bullock goes to rehab and, you know, all of her mishaps. And uh, there's a, a scene in there where uh, the guy is standing up and he's one of the counselors and he's he's talking about his story and he talks about how something would happen or nothing would happen. And then he would you know, proceed to, to drink or, or to use. And when I first saw that, I realized, you know, it didn't take, I didn't have to have something to blame my use on. It could just be nothing or it could be anything. And he also talks about how if he could just make the person that's trying to get him to stop understands understand how he felt when he wasn't using, then that person would never ask him to try to stop. And that resonated with me a lot too, because there's just this, this restlessness, this discontent, this irritability, uh, anxiousness, anxiety. Uh, I wished for a long time that I had like a superpower that I could just place my hand on somebody and make them feel the way that I felt. Uh, because I didn't feel like anybody did. I felt like I was completely unique in how that was affecting me. So so we're setting up for you to be focused on a grand career after high school, right? Um, career abuse. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't have any. I went to college uh, on a full scholarship. My ACT scores got me a full ride. I went to school because that's what I was supposed to do. Um, I was just told you get out of high school, you go to college, and I might have gone to four or five classes that first semester and just flunked out. Um, you like know. four or five sessions? Yeah, like four or five hours out of the semester. Yeah, I had other things to do. Um, <laughs> I had what I thought were better things to do than that. Um, like I said, I had a very, um, you know, they, they talk about when you start using your emotional development stops. You know, and I started at 13, 14 um, with cigarettes and then, you know, quickly moved into drinking and then smoking pot. And then by the time I was in college, I was up for whatever. So I was using meth and drinking all the time and smoking weed all the time. And so I still 
was thinking like a 13 year old. You know, I didn't have any concept of life beyond that particular day. And then my goal for that particular day was to feel as good or as normal as possible. And so every single day was just wake up in the morning, try to figure out what I think I need to use to try to get that magic feeling, pursue that, uh, and then overdo that. And then uh, tell myself that night, I'm not going to do this again tomorrow, wake up the next day, and the entire cycle just repeated. And I did that for, gosh, 20 years. You know, How did you function enough to find re- a relationship and yeah. keep a job and get married and all of this stuff? Yeah. Um, for me, my, um, my use was cyclical. Um, I would start out light and, you know, tell myself that I'm going to just only do it at night or on the weekends. And then I would hold that for a couple of weeks. And then I would say, okay, well, it's Thursday's close enough to the weekend. So I'm going to drink on Thursday. And and this is, you know, kind of when I was getting started and it would just progressively get worse until I would have, you know, just a crash and and the crash might've been, uh, financially, you know, I was out of money. Uh, it might have been emotionally, you know, my I hadn't slept or ate in a long time, so I just, you know, couldn't continue doing what I was doing. Or it might have been a <laughs> real literal physical crash, like when I put my car into a wall at 50 miles an hour. And, uh, of course, went to the hospital and um, was laid up at my mom and dad's house uh, without pain medication because mom didn't want me to have it. And, uh, you know, so, so that would have... Uh, uh, instance of that would occur and then I would stop and then a week or two or maybe a month would go by and I would start drinking every once in a while and that would lead to other things and so between nine and 18 months roughly was my cycle period so I could keep it together I would get a new job I would do really well at that job Uh, I might get into a relationship and then things would progressively get worse. I would crash, lose everything, and then start over. So that's kind of, um, I happen to be in between one of those, <clears throat> excuse me, when uh, I met my current wife, who uh, you know, and uh, thankfully I know. And uh, I was working at a restaurant. I was in a relationship that was sick as could be. Uh, with a girl I'd been in uh, with a, for about two and a half years. And um, I always had to be with somebody. I couldn't be alone. You know, I needed somebody to, uh, I guess, complete me, you would say, or, or what, just do all the adult things that people need to get done because I wasn't paying bills. I wasn't, you know, saving money. I wasn't doing any of those things. I was just strictly doing the minimum that I could to get by and then going out and using whatever I could find. And uh, so I was living with this girl and I was working full time uh, for my dad. And then I started taking some college classes to keep me out of the house a little more. And then I had a lady that came in as a patient at my dad's office and she was opening a restaurant and said that she needed some help in the evening. So I took a part time job there. And uh, that's where I met my wife. We uh, did banquet work together at night. And uh, I've told her this, and, and I'm not afraid to put it on the record. I thought <laughs> I thought she was a user too because she talked a lot, super fast. She worked really hard. She was skinny. She had, you know, bags under her eyes. Uh, but I realize now is because she was a single mom busting her butt, you know, trying to to make ends meet. And uh, so I, I kind of 
I thought we'll get together. She was a really cool lady. I wasn't looking for a relationship. I was already in a sick one. And so, uh, we just got together really well. We just worked together really well. And, um, we ended up, um, actually moving in together about three or four months after I met her and uh, she already had my oldest son, Jacob was about six months old when we met. And, uh, so we ended up getting a place together and I was functioning. Uh, she knew that I was, you know, drinking all the time. I, I didn't try to hide anything, but, um, you know, I, I, I was able to function fairly well. And just by, when I say function, I mean, you know, just do the bare minimum that it takes to get to the next day. I wasn't, wasn't going anywhere. I didn't have any aspirations. I didn't have any, uh, goals or anything like that. My, my goal was just to make it to the next day and start the process all over again. As I sit here and listen to you, I'm struck by how your countenance changed when you started to talk about Ada. You guys have been married, what, 15 years? Close, 14, together 15, yeah. And I wish she could see the look on your face. I wish you, our listener, could see the look <laughs> on this guy's face because when you talk about her, it's pretty spectacular. I hope she sees it when I'm at home because... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she is an amazing person. And one of the things that, you know, addiction kind of works on you is your self-esteem. And it makes you not feel good enough. And it makes you, uh, you know, just feel like you don't deserve things good. And so, unfortunately, you know, before the reboot took place in my life, um, I spent a lot of years married to her thinking that I didn't deserve her. And thinking that uh, as soon as she figures out who the real me is, she's going to be gone just like everybody else. And so it's, it's wonderful now today to sit here and say, yeah, I do deserve you, you know, and I am good enough for you. And, um, just to try every day to, uh, be a little bit better than the day before because she's been through a lot and uh, and we've both been through a lot, but, um, man, she's, she's crazy good. (laughs) You meet, You've moved in together and we got together and uh, we ended up getting a house in Fort Smith. And, uh, you know, I was, I was using, uh, quite a bit, but, but I was still staying functional. I was working with dad and of course she had a child. So I was trying to find a place to work that had insurance to cover us because we wanted to have more children and, um, we wanted to get married. And so we did get married in 2004 and I got a job with Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield, uh, which actually was in Oklahoma city. And, um, cause I was working in insurance and, and so we moved out to there. And, uh, for me, I, it was the fear that I've talked about, you know, it just, it grew exponentially being that far away from uh, my mommy and daddy, you know, that always took care of me. Cause whenever I would crash, I could go back to their house and they would help me get back on my feet. And so <clears throat> we moved out there and we were alone and, you know, it was, uh, there's something, when you're, when you're using, I tend to make commitments when I'm feeling really good. And then when that wears off and I have to keep those commitments, <laughs> things get really bad. Um, and so 
I don't, this wasn't one of those things, but it was, it wasn't like a one, one time decision, but you know, things were good. And, and, and you're talking about the job commitment uh, here. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And, and deciding it was cool for me to get that far away and, and try to be alone and be a dad and be a husband and be uh, all these things that an employee. And so we, we moved, you know, and things were going well. And uh, I was working for this company and, and just like every other time when I had first started a job, like I really get in there and I try really hard and I do really well and excelled. And so I was getting some recognition for that. And um, we found out that she was pregnant um, with twins. And um, that's a life-changing deal, obviously. And, uh, you know, we, we had been trying to have a kid. And um, I remember coming home today, and there was a bag on the chair. And it was a little pink bag, you know, and, and I just pulled it out. And it was a little baby clothes. And, and uh, I don't remember exactly what it said, but it indicated that, you're going to be a dad, <laughs> something like that. And, um, you know, so that was, uh, that was amazing. And, uh, funny story. And, and I know Ada shared this on hers, but just in case that doesn't get heard, we had called my mom and uh, it was about a week before April fools and told her that we were having a child and that we were having twins. Ha ha. April fools, you know? <laughs> and, uh, then about a week later we went to the ultrasound and found out we actually were in fact having twins and it was really hard to convince my mom that, we were, that <laughs> this wasn't round two. This is actually real. And yes, they're having two. It's twin girls. And um, so, you know, there's something about me at that time. And I'm just going to speak, you know, as an addict, you can't see too far into the future. And so the ramifications of what was about to happen in my life, whether it went one way or another, you just can't grasp it. You you can't get beyond the day that you're in. You're just can, and so um, it didn't really it didn't really make me scared or fearful. Um, you know, beyond where I, what I already was, uh, I was just like, okay, you know, as the next day comes, we'll just take it as it as it goes. And so. We ended up in the hard part for addicts is when you move, you know, to somewhere else, you've got to find the connections. And so, you know, I was trying to do that. I was asking around at work and I was, uh, I had started drinking. Asking around at work. That works well. Absolutely. Well, you just know, I know my people, you know, um, you know who to, you, you just, you just know, I don't know how to explain it, but you just know. Um, and so I was getting a, a little bit of a, of a, connection going and um my drinking had increased because that's easily accessible and um i had this weird thing in my mouth and it was like a tooth that was growing out of the roof of my mouth and i'd had it in there for a long time and it felt like a popcorn kernel that was stuck in the roof of my mouth and uh it just kept getting bigger slowly i mean this was years and years slowly and so i went to the dentist and I didn't know what it was at the time and he did an x-ray and he showed it to me. He was like, Oh, this is weird, but it happens. No big deal. And we'll just have it removed in a couple of weeks. Here's a prescription for like a hundred 10 milligram hydrocodones. I didn't say it hurt. I never asked for it. You know, I wasn't, I, he just, here you go. And that was a turning point for me because uh, of course I went and filled them and I'd had them before and it, it never really stuck out to me. But there was something about that point in time and all of the fear and anxiety that I felt being away from home 
that when I took that pill, it all went away. And I felt confident. And I felt competent. And I felt like I can do this. And, uh, man, that, that set me off. And uh, just like everything else, I started taking it as prescribed and then maybe taking two instead of one and waiting all day until I was off of work to do it. And then, oh, maybe I'll just take one at lunch. And, you know, it just, it gradually increased and um, went through that prescription, got another one, had my uh, surgery, of course, got another one and uh, decided that that was going to be my mission now in life was I have to have these pills to function. So, uh, man, I did all kinds of things. Um, this was right around the time when, uh, we had went to a routine ultrasound and found out that my wife was actually having the babies way early. And oh, by the way, they're boys. They are boys. (laughs) Yeah. On, uh, we went to the ultrasound and the doctor said, I've got two pieces of information for you. The first one is you're not having two twin girls. You're having two boys. And the second piece of information is you're having them right now. So we're going to send you across the parking lot, check you in and see if we can, you know, do some medication or whatever and get this stopped and and get everything back where the way it's supposed to be. And, uh, I thought, okay, you know, no big deal. They're doctors. They can do that. They've seen it before. We'll go over there a couple days in and, and she'll be fine. And, uh, it didn't work out that way. She, uh, ended up with preeclampsia really bad. <clears throat> and after a couple of days, they ended up having to deliver the boys via C-section, uh, 15 ounces and one and a half pounds respectively. Um, Keaton was the first one and Caden and, uh, yeah, we came up with their names just on the spot. We started Googling stuff, you know, in the hospital room and, um, Keaton is a family name in my family and, uh, Caden actually meant strength. I think. And so my wife liked that. I liked it. We kept it. And, um, so while I've got this going on simultaneously, I've got this beast of an addiction that has reared its head in a way that I've never really had it rear its head before. And so I guess as the stress was going up uh, with my wife and what was going on, you know, it took more and more of the quote unquote medication to make me be able to function under that. And, uh, this is where it kind of gets a little spotty for me because I stayed highly intoxicated for the next eight years, <laughs> you know, every single day. And, uh, so I don't, I don't, you know, if I try to go in and do details, uh, it's not going to be in the right order. And I, it may or may not be correct. In fact, one of the most difficult things that I've had to grapple with and deal with in my recovery is the fact that, uh, when the boys were born, I had stayed so intoxicated that, you know, we lost Keaton after 27 days because of uh, lung infections and, and just the, uh, all of the issues that arise with being born at 24 weeks gestation where you're not even developed yet. And, uh, I stayed so intoxicated. I don't have a lot of memories of him that I can just spontaneously recall. Ada will talk about certain things and I can kind of, you know, get there with it. But, uh, and that bothered me for a long time. Um, and and that kept me in that cycle of, uh, self-pity and self-hatred and, 
and guilt and shame and all those things that just drive an addict in their behavior. Um, and to be honest with you, you know, we stayed in the hospital a, a total of 204 days and uh, Caden came home on Christmas Eve, which was uh, a miracle, you know, and uh, I thought that uh, Hallmark was going to be right in the movie and, and we were going to just have this happy ending. And um, that was our main goal was to get out of the hospital. But we quickly realized once you're out of the hospital, when the buzzers and the bells go off, there's not a team of nurses and professionals there to, to help make things okay. It's just you on your own. So, again, just crank up that that fear and anxiety level. And, and every time that knob gets cranked up, so does the amount of, of uh, substances that I need to, to numb that. And, uh, of course, I missed a lot of work uh, while they were in the hospital. And um, as, you know, my cycle was starting to fulfill itself, I'd been there little over a year and uh, I was missing work even when I didn't have to because I didn't feel good I was sick I was detoxing whatever just trying to to function and so um, you know that that's what I was doing while my wife is at the hospital and at home and with the kids and at the doctor's appointments you know I'm out just trying to wrangle just every single day is the same day over and over again it's like that movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray where you wake up and you you slap the alarm clock and you just live out the exact same day um, but in that movie, he has a chance to try to make the day better. And, and you just really don't when you're that far in it, uh, for an addict. We went through a season where within a year period, I guess it was, or maybe 18 months, you know, we lost, uh, we lost one son. We went home for a funeral, came back. Our house had been broken into, um, I lost a job, um, we lost, and this is kind of silly, but a couple of pets, you know, were, were run over. And it's it was not just silly. Man, it was just like we couldn't go a month without some kind of major tragedy going down. And um, then, of course, you know, we had lost Caden uh, about two years after he was, was born. He had come home and we had to put him back in the hospital uh, one one time after we had returned from a trip and, and he just never was able to get out of it. And, uh, by this time we're both just mentally and emotionally done. Uh, I myself, um, you know, the crash that comes along with something like that. And, and of course I've been doing so much, um, so many drugs and, and drinking and everything, just trying to, to keep it all down. Um, I couldn't even get a job. I tried to get a job with a company out there and I went to work three or four days and like I was having panic attacks all day and I had to, like I literally just stayed in my room all day and cried and was under the, the pillows and the blankets and uh, like just scared to just that impending doom feeling. Um, and so uh, this was about 2008 and uh, we lost our house because I didn't have a job and my wife was going to school and working part-time and we decided we'd had enough of Oklahoma City and uh, we came on home to Fort Smith and moved back in with my parents uh, I can't even remember and, and you'll have to forgive me but my uh, daughter Sophia came along somewhere in that time uh, she was born in Oklahoma City because Ada wanted to stay 
for that hospital. She, she knew those people. And of course, um, you know, for her, another pregnancy was a, a pretty scary thing. Um, so we stayed through that. And then when she was, was old enough, we, we moved back on home and, you know, I, I got back to work with my dad because, you know, dad will always, will always help me out. And, um, you know, I just continued the same day in the same cyclical use um, for the next five years, six years, you know, and um, one of the many crashes that had occurred, I thought, oh, well, I can get away from this if we move. If we move out of Fort Smith and, and go out of town a little bit, I'll get rid of my cell phone and um, then they can't find me. But uh, there's some they, yeah, they, any the my friends that use the the people that would text me, hey, do you need anything? You know, like those people. <clears throat> and uh, I was a horrible uh, drug addict because I, I never did get a real good connection. I was always having to try to find and look. Uh, so I was always, you know, on the on the lookout. I didn't ever like. I tried to sell sometimes and I would just use everything that I had. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you spend a lot of money on it and think, Oh man, I'll, I'll sell this part. And then that way I'll have this little part for free. And then I'll just do that over and over again. And before you know it, I've, I've used it all in like days. So that didn't work out very well for me. I wasn't a very good, uh, wasn't a very good addict, but, um, we moved to Alma and, and there's a couple of things that stick out to me. This is where we're going to, we're about to get, uh, to a different part of my story. It sounds pretty hopeless so far, Mason. It felt very hopeless because we, like I said, we're going on almost 20 years of me being in this daily cycle of I'm not okay. I need something outside of myself to fix it. Oh crap. I took too much of that. Not going to do that again. Repeat in 365 times 20 years it beats you down. <laughs> it gets very, uh, and, um, yeah, I don't, there was no relationship for me right now with God because as I mentioned, I felt like my life circumstances were a punishment and I was very angry because my wife didn't deserve to live through what I felt I was being punished for. I thought she got pulled in because um, she was p- perfect in my eyes. Uh, and that was another part of my sickness. But, um, you know, when she found out she was pregnant, she didn't drink. She never has smoked. She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't do anything. And she ate well and read the books and did all the things that she was supposed to do. And still this happened. It had to be a result of me and, and my failures. And that's a lot to carry, uh, it, it, whether it's misguided or not, which it certainly was at the time, that was my reality. And that was a lot for me to carry. So when we got out to Alma and, um, you know, I said that sometimes you make commitments when you're feeling really good and then you have to carry them out. Well, one day they were looking for a basketball coach for my son's team and I was feeling really good. So I said, I'll do it not realizing, you know, this is a three month deal and oh crap. Now I have to make sure that every time we get together, you know, I've got something to use to make me functional so I can get out there and do it. And, uh, so this was in 2011 and, um, I'm doing this. I'm trying to 
maintain and, and keep my myself together. And the last game of the year, um, I'd left my phone on the bench and it got stolen. And I went home. It was an iPhone, so I had to find my iPhone thing. And we went home. I looked it up and I sent a message and said, I know you got my phone. Just take it over here to the store, leave it, and I'll come get it. And you can see the little dot, you know, and it's running down the highway, and I know where it is, and then all of a sudden it just kind of stops. So they threw it out the window. So I had the great idea, uh, well, I'm going to go find it, you know, and I took uh, two of my kids with me, and I had been drinking, and I had been using whatever I had, smoking and whatever. I, I don't all know, but I know that I was not fit to be driving, much less with my children. And uh, so I took Jacob with me, and we were in the van, and, and I tried to locate it. And, and I saw this group of people, and I'm just telling the story because I want you to know what my mindset, how off I was at this time, how paranoid or whatever you want to call it. I saw this group of people at the end of the street, and I thought, ah, those are the guys that have my phone. No reason to think that other than the fact that I just, they were in the same area. And so I went into Walmart and bought a BB gun that looked like a real gun. Cause I thought, well, if they've got a real gun, I better have something, you know, I can just flash it to him and go, Hey, you know, we're not going to have any problems here. It's pretty insane to think that that's a good idea to take a BB gun to a gunfight. Never mind that there's not going to be a gunfight. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not picking my phone up at the okay corral for crying out loud. So no, but this is my mindset. This was a great idea at the time. This was brilliant. So I'm in the parking lot of Walmart and I'm pulling this BB gun out that looks like a real gun. I'm looking at it. I'm loading it. I'm unpackaging it and putting the stuff in and just flashing it all around. And I decide, well, I'm not going to go right now. I'm going to go back home and we get a couple other things and then I'll go back. So I went back home and dropped off one of my kids and picked up two of the other ones. I was going to take them with me. And as I'm driving back down there, I see two or three police cars just whip into the Walmart parking lot and I get around the corner where I can see well enough. There's sheriffs, there's highway patrols, there's police officers, and they have this van surrounded that looks like my van. Mine's green. It's blue. <laughs> and they pull this guy out and they slam him up against the side of the van. And all I could think of was what if he's got two little babies in the back and they're watching their daddy get frisked. And of course, somebody in the Walmart parking lot had seen me. That should have been me. That's one of a hundred instances where it should have been me and it wasn't. So you ask me if God is watching out for me. I tell you today, absolutely, absolute, no question. I didn't see it at the time, but when I got caught forging prescriptions, could have been in jail for life. I had hundreds of counts of criminal impersonation and, you know, forgery and all that stuff. The guy let me go. You know, he said, I know you've been trying to get help. I don't want to see, if I see this again, I'm coming to get you in full SWAT team, breaking your door down in the middle of the night, taking you to jail for the rest of your life. But he let me go. There's so many situations like that. So... This realization hits me. I go back home, drop the kids off. I'm there. The police come to my house because my license plate had been called in. 
and they let me go. I told them what happened. I said, yeah, I bought a BB gun. I thought these guys, you know, it, it was a completely ridiculous story, but it was the truth. <laughs> and these guys are making fun of me because they asked me where the gun was. I go to the van to just go pull it out. And they're like, whoa, 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 you know, hands on their guns. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was so naive and innocent. I wasn't going to do anything, but these guys don't know that. So when I sat in that convenience store parking lot and I saw that man being manhandled up against his van and knew that that should have been me and had that been me with what I had in the vehicle, how intoxicated I was at that time, it was over. And your kids seeing it? Gone, yeah. Um, it wasn't enough for me to make a change immediately, but that started the path. And we were talking before this earlier, and you said that racing brain. And I know what that racing brain is. And uh, when you lay down at night, you know, and, and for me, it was just a rehash of all the poor decisions that I had made. And I started doing that, and for some reason, I was just questioning what my relationship with God was. Like, is, is he real? Um, I thought I was too smart for that, and I kept trying to... Uh, You're too smart for God. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, people that believe in those miracles and that faith and all that stuff, you're just, you're just not smart enough to see that that's not reality. And, um, you know, my wife, when all that stuff went down with the boys, she had turned a different direction, and she turned towards God, and I turned away, and I was angry at that because I felt like... Um, I felt like she was a traitor. You know, she was hanging on to this magical spiritual thing that was complete bullcrap and leaving me by myself. And this is, it's a ridiculous state of mind, but that's how I felt. And I'd always try to catch her and ask her some scientific question like, well, what about this? How can you explain that? And, and this, that, and the other. And it was completely asinine. And I remember one night, um, I asked her, I said, what if, it, what if all of this stuff that you believe and, and your whole credo about this is wrong? You know, what if, what if this whole thing that you've dedicated your life to is completely wrong and you've just lived your life for nothing? And she looked at me and she said, well, then I've lived a good life and I've tried to love other people. What's wrong with that? And I didn't have a comeback for that. Like I always had some smart ass comment to come back with and I had nothing. And there was just a little flicker right there. Um, I don't know how to explain it, but the process of, of faith, I think was started. And I went in there and I was laying down that night and my mind was going crazy. Yeah. That night is the gun night. No, this night when I talked to Ada, this was okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the the time with Ada was about four or five weeks after that, and I was just to the end. Like I was ready to be done with life. Like I couldn't do this anymore. I was exhausted all the time, and um, I, I never tried to take my own life. But I certainly wished at times, let's just not wake up tomorrow, you know. And um, so I'm laying there uh, this night, and I decide to get up and just start writing. And so I go to the computer and I just start typing and 
my wife still has it and it's an insane rant <laughs> of just of just random thoughts and and things and um somehow at the end of it i came because i questioned my faith quote unquote faith for so long because i walked the aisle yet i was this monstrous addict i couldn't reconcile those two things so i always wondered well is it really real did i really am i really a christian Am I, did I really give my life over? And, and just all the time I would question that because I didn't, I didn't feel like that it was real for me. And at the end of this night, when I got done with that writing, I accepted, I am not a Christian. Like I did it. I didn't, I didn't really do that. And there was something freeing about that. Like I didn't have to pretend anymore. Like, okay, I, you know, it's like a weight was lifted off. And then, uh, Three days later, I was standing there in the bedroom and I was trying to go outside and I was talking to my wife and I was trying to, and I had just been like, I hadn't been sleeping. I hadn't been doing, I was just, wasn't working, just using just all the time. And and I was just, just having this weird transformation and I was trying to go outside and I just got this, this feeling and it's really hard for me to put into words. And, and if I'm honest now, I know what it might have been because I've I've done a little research on like brain chemicals and things that happen when you are sleep deprived and stuff. But at the time it just felt like this immense relief of 20 years of guilt and shame. And I went around the house just in this stupor, this state of, of crying and laughing. And, uh, I just, I felt love for myself. Uh, I felt forgiveness from God. Um, it's just, it's so hard to explain. So you go from, I'm, I'm a childhood Christian who wants to, do what is expected and follow this, uh, forgot what you call it, a dictator kind of a God, to now all of a sudden you decide, I'm not a Christian and yay, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And then three days later, I had asked for proof my whole life. I couldn't come up with faith. I had asked for proof. God, show me that you're real. And on that night, when I felt those feelings, I had no doubt that God was real. And again, I cannot put it into words. People that have experienced it will understand. Um, And the great thing about today is I don't care that I can't put it into words. I don't feel like I have to. I don't feel like I have to explain it. It just is what it is. Um, so when that happened, uh, went around the house, cleaned out all the drugs and, you know, got rid of everything and, and thought, okay, this is it. I'm cured. I have no desire to use for the first time in my entire life. No desire to change the way that I feel. I feel accepted, content and loved and I'm good. And like four or five days later, that feeling was fading, you know, and it didn't take me but another week or two. And I was right back into using again. And that, that night happened in February of 2012. And I wrote it again for another eight months until October of 2012 when I decided to go to treatment and, and try to get some help that way. Cause I wanted to stop, but I just couldn't. 
I needed to be confined and in a place for a long enough period of time, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, eight weeks, whatever it was, that I could get it all out of my system, get my mind back right a little bit, and really get some solid footing on the ground to move forward. So I did that. Um, in 2012, on October uh, the 29th, I went to Little Rock and I checked myself in and uh, had the most miserable two weeks of my life while I was detoxing off everything. Um, cold turkey, I didn't go to the detox center. I just decided I'm going to do this and I didn't sleep and I didn't eat. And um, about two weeks in, I was very ready to come home. Um, you know, I was I was scared to death. And, uh, you know, I've heard people say that when the fear of staying the same becomes greater than the fear of change, then you'll make a change. Because it's amazing how comfortable we can get inside the most sick psychotic circumstances. Uh, and that's what that, I just wanted to get back to that familiarity. I just didn't, I didn't want to face what was new. And so one night after I hadn't, you know, of course I didn't sleep that night. I went and I was going to go tell my counselor that it's time to go home. I got, I, I need to get, start the process of getting out of here. And uh, I sat there in front of his office and he, he brought me in and we just had this amazing talk. And he was a, a Christian man who his experience came from the streets. He wasn't educated in drug counseling. He had lived my story and he had lost kids as well in the hospital. Uh, very similar situation to what I had gone through. That's God, you know, putting it together. Um, Cause I was originally assigned to another guy and, and I was like, no, I can't do this. And, and I ended up with this one. And there was just something about that conversation that when I got done with that, I decided if for nothing else, other than the fact that I always quit what I start, I'm going to finish this. And so I stayed for the additional two weeks. And from that morning, until I sit here today, my life has gotten better every day because that was the time that I made the decision that this way of life, the 12 steps of recovery, um, that's the way that I'm going to live the rest of my life. And uh, that's what I've done. When I was coming to the end of, of my time there and I was so completely broken and willing for change and help, that I had put my future after that. It was only a 30-day program. Um, we had consulted with Ed Saucier, who's the pastor at our church, who uh, the first time I met him was when I limped into his church on crutches after having the aforementioned wreck that I had slammed my car into a wall, and my mom decided we needed some Jesus in our life. And, and so he has been uh, a part of my life since I was a teenager and he's seen me struggle and uh, you know, he buried both the boys and he married my wife and I. So many of the very important decisions and events in my life, he's been a part of them. So uh, she was actually consulting with him while I was gone on Ada. Ada I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, what do we do when I get done? Uh, because it's not very often that after 20 years of, of addiction, you go away for four weeks and then you're cured and you come back and everything's fine. Uh, and I didn't know if that was going to be the case either. So we had, um, I had asked him to be my sponsor. Um, just 
in some form or fashion, I wrote to him while I was in treatment and said, you know, I, I have done a very poor job at making decisions in my life up to this point. I need some outside guidance and help. Can you do that? And will you do that? And he sent me back this little contract that he has for his sponsees and said, well, if you agree to this, this and this, then yes, I'll be your sponsor. And of course, I was like, whatever I have to do. And I don't even remember what all the things were, but it's, uh, you know, be honest, of course, at all times. And um, you have to contact me once a week and, you know, all these all these things. And uh, so, so what's I, a sponsor for our friends who? Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're when you're in a 12 step program, um, generally what they try to do is have what they call a sponsor, which is really just a guide to help you through this unknown journey that you're about to go on, uh, which are the 12 steps. And it's an introspective look at yourself and your relationships and your past actions and the reasons why you made those decisions. And then it's a concerted effort to not repeat those same mistakes, you know, and to, to grow closer to God and grow closer to your family and the people around you and, and really to repair that relationship with yourself to yourself. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll dive into that just a little bit more, uh, a little down the line. But uh, so I asked him to help me, you know, to be that guy. And I asked him, do you think I should come home? when I get done because my wife wasn't sure and uh, because of finances uh, was a main a main deal and, and uh, I feel like the grace of God you know touched her heart and his they they decided and, and we kind of decided as a group that on a trial basis when I got done with treatment I would come home and we would just see how it goes and uh, so when I got back I went immediately that day to my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting, and that is a 12-step program for people um, who have drug addictions. And um, I had been to several AA meetings. I'd been to a couple NA meetings before, uh, and I've been to a Celebrate Recovery meeting before I went to treatment. And um, so I I knew a little bit about them, and uh, I just knew that I needed people around me like me, um, people that were trying to get out of this way of life that I had been stuck in for, for so long and live a different way. And uh, so I went to my very first meeting and I probably went to, they, they make a suggestion that you go to 90 meetings in 90 days to kind of form the habit. And, and it also helps you get to know people and all that good stuff that comes along with it. And so this new found commitment to completing things I'd started that I started in treatment when I finished treatment, I said, okay, that's my next, next task is to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I probably did 150 in that first 90 days. Cause I didn't have a job, didn't have anything to do. And there were at least two meetings at my, uh, my home group. And then another place had five or six meetings a day. So I just went to meetings and, and held on tight between and, you know, got to know people and, um, that program, I think, saved my life. You know, it, I, I owe a lot to Narcotics Anonymous. And um, so I, I got plugged in, you know, and um, I started to get a job. Um, I still had this uh, kind of deep down feeling like I wasn't sure if this was real, you know, if it was going to take. 
but I tried really hard from what I had learned in that program to just take it a day at a time, I just get through this day clean and then work on the next day. And so I didn't want to think too far down the line about uh, weeks or months or, you know, what might happen because, you know, I have this cycle where a big crash happens. I do really well for a while, then it, it all goes to crap and I lose everything. So there was just something different and, and I can't explain it. Uh, I don't know whether it was because I was teamed up now and I, and I had my faith or, or what, but I was done. I knew, I knew that I was done living that life. I didn't know, yeah, I'm never going to touch a drug or drink again in my life. That wasn't even on my mind. I just knew that all of my efforts were not going to be focused on recovery and trying to, to be different. I, I couldn't go back to that way. And so um, I started looking for a job and I got offered a job at a restaurant and I turned it down because a lot of times in that job or in, in that world, um, drugs and alcohol are kind of a part of it. And I didn't trust myself uh, to, to be around those people and to have instant cash on hand at all times and all this stuff. I was What I was doing was setting boundaries because I had learned a little bit about who I was and what set me off. So while I needed the money, I needed to be clean more. Uh, I was worthless if I was going to go back to that. So on an off whim, uh, one of my wife's old friends from school worked at a company in Fort Smith, uh, ABF, now ArcBest, and uh, they're kind of a, a legendary mythic employer in Fort Smith and, and then uh, just it's a it's a great company and it's a big company and I thought you know I'll just do it they're never going to call me uh, but I'll just do it because I could now pass a drug test which I could never do in the past so I'm like wow this stuff has opened up to me now <laughs> you know? um, it took like it took almost two months for me to get through the interview process with them and then one day they called and made me an offer and I mean it was Oh, glorious day. <laughs> the, the benefits that they have, you know, to take care of the family. And, you know, at this point, we've got Landon, my other son. And so we've got three children and my wife and I, and she's still in school uh, trying to finish up her master's. And uh, we just it, it was needed at the time. So I took that job. And I don't things have just gotten better. You know, every day I, I continued going to meetings. I started working the steps. Um, I got a sponsor. These were things I'd never done before when I tried to get clean and stay clean. I put some effort into my recovery. And, um, you know, God's going to do a lot for us. Uh, a lot of times when we don't recognize it or know it, but we have to do some things too. And, and I feel like the, the conscious effort to work the steps and to apply those steps, that's our part. You know, and I feel like this blueprint has been given to us through him. And all of these different programs have a different set of, um, you know, kind of their own tweak on, on the 12 steps, but it's all basically the same thing. And it's in the Bible, you know. So it's it's been known for a long time that if you do these certain steps, it can help you live the most reasonably happy life that you can. And so that's what I tried to do. And, and again, I got in, into the workforce and uh, applied myself. And it's amazing how well you can do when you're not waiting for five o'clock and you're not sick in the morning and, you know, all these things. And I excelled and, and got a couple of promotions. And, um, you know, 
I really thought my recovery was working, and it was, you know, to an extent. And we saved up and paid off debts and worked for several years and, and um, ended up buying a house. Uh, and in the meantime, I got a new car, you know, so here I had this wonderful job and this ridiculous title and new house and, and new truck. And, you know, this has been about four years since I got clean. And um, I kind of got confused, you know, about re what recovery was. And I felt like I had all this outside stuff that proved that I was doing the right thing. But I, I still kind of felt on the inside, I still had that feeling of, of being less than. I still had... Uh, I had kind of stopped doing my step work. I had stopped working with sponsors because life had gotten busy. And um, I just let those things that I started doing in the beginning that got me where I was, I stopped doing those things. And so in September of 2016, uh, I had a foot surgery scheduled. And I had had a surgery before in recovery, and, and it went okay. Um, and in September of 2016, you know, if I'm honest, I knew deep down that I was going to get me a free one. That's what they say in the program. Uh, you know, I, I was allowed to have drugs. I didn't have to have any responsibilities. I was off work. Um, I was kind of looking forward to it. And, and it's, it's weird to say, and it's, uh, you know, but I didn't, I didn't think that when it first happened. But as I've looked back on it, that's what it was. I, I knew full well going into it. And they say relapse doesn't happen when you use. It happens way before you use. You know, you start doing these activities and your mind goes back to the old ways of thinking. And then, then comes the actual relapse. But uh, so I misused my pain medication and um, took more. I started out taking it as prescribed and then it didn't make the pain completely go away. So I doubled it up. And then before you knew it, I was just taking it like candy, just like the old days. And, uh, I wasn't able to, I never got caught doing it. Um, I didn't start calling and asking the doctors for refills or do anything like that. Once I ran out, you know, I would have my follow up and, um, he would give me another prescription, but it was stepped down. He was stepping me down off of it. And, and I, you know, I handled that. Um, but I just wasn't, I couldn't go on with that secret, you know, that I had done that. And so uh, in January of 2017, I sat my wife and son down and I told them, I'm going to have to change my clean date because I, I used uh, and I used in, in an incorrect way. And so that was hard um, because I felt, you know, a lot of that uh, old self-deprecating talk had come back and telling me I was no good and, you know, worthless and all this stuff that uh, some people call it the disease. Some people call it Satan, whatever you want to call it. It is what it is. It's that broken part of us, you know, that wants us not to do well. And um, so I thought, uh, you know, I'm going to feel better as soon as I get this off my chest. And I didn't for a while, <laughs> you know, I felt, I still felt like crap and, uh, you know, but slowly I got over it, you know, I got over myself and I realized, you know, I jumped back into a step study group and in, in going back through the steps and looking at it, I realized that 
my goal in recovery had been kind of diverted. You know, I thought recovery meant the new house and job and money and material and on the outside, but um, I didn't make a, I, I kind of forgot to start to keep working on the inside. I was feeling this urge to get closer to God um, before my misstep in, in the surgeries. Like I, I felt like I had this disconnection a little bit. Um, when I was on my knees and everything was horrible, I was very dependent on him. When I got the job and I got the salary and we got the house and everything, and as I became more and more feeling like I'm self-reliant and I'm doing this on my own, that relationship uh, suffered. You know, my faith suffered. And so when uh, when I made the commitment to get back into the step study, I didn't want to, but I knew that's what I was supposed to do. And so um, I knew that if I just took the action then the results would be left up to God and things would happen. You know, and they say, uh, it's kind of like doing the steps. There's, there's a part in, in one of the books that says, if you work the steps to the best of your ability, you can't help but change. Even if you don't want to be doing it, if you do the work, you're going to be changed for the better. So I knew I just got to get into it. And, and I did that. And uh, they were the first group of people that I told about having to change my date. And they were supportive, of course. And, um, you know, I've found out through my life that I'm pretty much the only one in my life that expects me to be perfect. And unfortunately, uh, I fall back into that sometimes, but nobody really does. And uh, so they were understanding. And then, of course, I told my, my wife and my son. And uh, then I started telling people in Celebrate Recovery. I've kind of moved from Narcotics Anonymous to Celebrate Recovery. It's what's appropriate in my life right now. Um, and that's that's also been kind of a theme is, is sometimes what's appropriate in one stage of recovery is not in another. And so it's okay that it changes and evolves in, in what you're doing. So I'm, I'm very involved in that right now. And uh, my wife and I are involved in the landing, which is kind of celebrate recovery for teenagers. And uh, we teach that on a regular basis. So it's really become a, uh, a real integral part of my life. And so when I got back into the step study and uh, what I'm realizing now about recovery is what I'm looking for is I need a little bit more self-acceptance. I need to be able to be okay not being perfect. I need my self-worth to come from self not from things on the outside. And I guess by definition, self-worth is, you know, comes from self, but I was using all these outer things, these outside things to try to make me look like a good person, but I wasn't backing that up with, with the actions. You know, I was coming home exhausted from work cause I, I worked 24 seven. I had my email on my phone. And so I was always trying to just do, do, do. And so I was tired a lot of times at home and I didn't want to hang out with the kids or with my wife. I just go in there and want to lay down, um, and uh, what I want recovery to do for me is to give me a little bit better perspective on what's important in life and friends and family and uh, being a dad and being a husband and being a father, um, being a friend and being a good employee. Those are the things that I want to improve now, not the number in my bank account and what car I'm driving and what I'm living in. Those things didn't fill that hole. So I need to find a different thing to fill that hole.
Mason's story continues with his daily walk through the 12 steps of recovery that are found in the Beatitudes and in Jesus Christ's Sermon on the Mount. You can find that in Matthew chapter 5. This interview continues, too. In an upcoming and shorter episode, Mason shares his advice and his encouragement for anyone who loves someone in the throes of addiction, anyone struggling with faith, or someone who loves someone struggling with faith, and he also shares his best advice for how parents can talk to their children about addiction. I'm Tracy Winchell. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your reboot story privately on our StoryWorks blog or as a guest on an upcoming podcast. And we appreciate your feedback, either in the iTunes store or by way of email. Drop us a line, reboots at winchellstoryworks.com or on our website, winchellstoryworks.com.